0: Well, good afternoon. It's good to to be able to speak to you, all the way from Scotland, and I do trust that God will bless us. I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 8, please, just a few chapters on from where we were. Romans chapter 8, please, and read with you from verse 26. Now, I know that Phil comes from Scotland, but He's not actually Scottish, so (laughs) he's a foreigner in a great land. He lives in Scotland. We appreciate him very much. So it's good to be with him and the others and enjoy their company and fellowship and also the teaching that we've been listening to. So let's read Romans chapter 8, just two verses, verse 26 and verse 27. And we want to think of one particular issue that is raised in these verses, and seek to encourage us as we think about it. So, let's read these verses together. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself, or better, himself, maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because... He maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, that's our reading. And our issue is found in verse 26. We know not what we should pray for as we ought. I'd like to speak to you with the time just left in this session about the subject of our prayer lives. I don't mean the prayers that we make when we come together, audibly for the brethren and silently for the sisters. I don't mean corporate prayer, but rather I want to speak about the prayers that no one sees or hears apart from the Lord. So that's the prayers that you make in the morning and through the day and also in the evening. You see, I think one of the things about our Christian lives is that most of us, myself included, have a pretty dysfunctional prayer life. And if I was to ask you, in any aspect of your Christian life, are there any areas that you would like to do better in? I'm pretty sure that this would be one area that would feature for most of us. Now, there can be discouragements to prayer. There are many biblical encouragements, but there can be some discouragements that can prey upon our minds. For example... Perhaps you get from time to time, I certainly do, perhaps you get a nagging doubt in your mind that prayer actually makes any difference. I mean, does it matter? Does it work? I mean, how do I get on in the days when I don't pray as to the days when I do pray and sometimes there's little difference between them? You might as well listen to some folks who might say things like this to you, look, things are going to happen anyway. God is sovereign and it's all pre-planned and so there's no need for you to pray because it actually isn't going to change anything. So don't bother. In fact, some folks might say, listen, the only thing really that is valuable about prayer is not so much you changing God or changing God. God's immutable. Not not changing God's plans. They're set eternally, uh, God simply wants to change you through prayer. And there's an element... Of truth in that, but you know it can be discouraging if that's all there is to prayer. And then, of course, there's an issue that's raised here. How do we actually know what to pray for in accordance with God's will? You know, you hear often people say, the Lord told me to do this, or the Lord said this to me, or and they speak about direct and specific instruction from the Lord that I know very, very little about in my own experience. I don't get experiences like that so much. And so very often, if I'm able to attribute anything to the will of God in my life, it's often looking back rather than commenting in the present. I want to encourage us today not to give up in prayer. I'd like to encourage you not to give up in prayer if you don't pray and I never prayed regularly until I was 17 and even then sporadically until you mature into a regular habit of prayer and if you're like that and you've never established a regular habit of prayer then I want to encourage you to start that to do that So rather than give up in prayer, or rather than stop, because perhaps even the solitary and routine character of that activity can perhaps discourage you. Not to mention the complexities of divine sovereignty. And we could talk about that all day. But rather than these things, the the Scriptures here turn us to the Holy Spirit. Now we don't talk very much about the Holy Spirit. Do You see, the Holy Spirit... His primary aim is not to really focus on himself but rather to focus on the Lord Jesus but we ought not to ignore him. He is as much God as the Lord Jesus. He is as much God as the Father. He is a divine person. He has divine personality and so forth. And here we are actually directed to him and to his activity in relation to our prayer life and it ought to be an encouragement to us. So let's go down the verses. Let's pick it apart as much as we can, and let's see what uh, the Scriptures teach us in relation to this. Now, like Phil, I like to kind of look at the grammar and context and so on, and when you come to two verses like this, you can't just pluck them out of the context of the chapter in which they're found, and time are not allowed to go right back up the chapter, but if you do so, you'll find this, that that connecting word at the beginning of verse 26 is very important. Now it's always important when you come to a Bible teaching conference that you keep your Bible open and that you follow the text. That's so important because when you forget anything we've said, then your eye ought to be able to go down these verses and it ought to come back to you and you ought to be able to find the structure again and so forth. So as I'm speaking, just as Jack Hunter, some of you might know him, he used to say this, just drop your eye onto the text and, and follow it with me if you would. So in verse 26 he begins this verse by saying likewise, likewise. So he's going to say something now that has a connection to something before. There's a similarity. This is not now a contrast, this is not the the, the words that we heard, but as for me. This is not contrast, but this is a a similarity. So in the same way, likewise, likewise. So you would then go back up the chapter and see what he's referring to. And he really, I think, in context, is referring to two instances of the word groan or groaning. And one is found in verse 22 and one is found in verse 23. And he's saying, likewise, he's going to introduce us to a third mention of that word in relation to the spirit. So in verse 22, he was speaking about, in that context, about the creation which is groaning. Now, I'm not an eco-warrior. I'm not really a warrior of any sort. You know, I've not been in northern Borneo. I've been in the southern part, and, you know, I've never hunted turtles or anything like that, I have to say. I'm a western tourist at best. But, you know, we are not so much seeking to preserve this planet. We're seeking to steward God's resources that he's given to us, in a responsible fashion, but let us not think that we're somehow going to save the planet. The planet has been condemned. The future has been revealed. Things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse in relation to this creation because this creation, the whole entity, is groaning in anticipation, in waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. He mentions that in verse 22. So it's groaning. But then in verse 23, he speaks about ourselves groaning, waiting for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. And that's something that we can relate to, I think. You know, the body is creaking, it is groaning, it is not functioning as it should. It is a process of deterioration. And we understand all of that. And we are looking forward to the day when that is not the case when resurrection and rapture will take place and sin will be left behind and the impact of sin upon our bodies will be gone and it will be a different story. So we are groaning and the creation is groaning. There's an element of, of striving, of conflict, of, of effort, of difficulty involved in all of that. Now he's going to say there is something similar in relation to prayer and the activity of the Holy Spirit connected to our prayer life. You see, prayer is actually one of the least solitary activities that you and I will ever engage in. Okay, you're in your room, you're on your knees, beside your bed or chair or wherever it is you pray. And if you don't have a place, you should find a place. There's a good uh, um, piece of advice to find uh, a place to pray in, the same place. Uh, make it your habit to go there, whatever it is, and adopt the same posture. Get on your knees, uh, and there's a whole ministry about prayer. But find that place, and when you are there, you shut the door behind you. Sure, no, no, there's no one else. But you know, when we were first married, we didn't have a very big house, and I decided I wanted a study. I thought I was a theologian, you see, so I needed a study, and the only study I could get was the what we call um, the under stair cupboard which was an understair cupboard without any points to breathe in. So every time I closed the door, I thought I was going to asphyxiate. So you had the door open a wee bit, and when the door was open a wee bit, light came in. But, you know, that was the first place, my little kind of first place where I seriously prayed. And you remember these places. They become important to you. So, actually, although you're there and there's a solitariness in relation to other people know this that when you're engaged in private prayer, the Spirit of God is actively engaged with you. And he's inside you. And the Lord Jesus is actively engaged in the very throne of God. And he's interceding as well. I mean, it goes on to say that, doesn't it? Uh, and the Lord is interceding. He's not in you. He's 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 at the throne. And the Father... His ear is always open to you. The whole of the Godhead is engaged when you are kneeling by your bed. There can be no less solitary endeavor than the whole of the Godhead actively engaged with you on your knees. Likewise. Now, what does he say? Likewise, notice verse 26. The Spirit also, there's our word again, also, connecting us from what has gone before, helpeth our infirmities. Now, I'm glad Paul did not write this. The Spirit also helps your infirmities. Because that would have made us think that Paul was putting himself on a level above them, which he wasn't. He includes himself, our infirmities. He has self-awareness that we often lack. He knows he has weakness. And he wants to encourage them in their weakness that the Spirit of God helps their weakness. Now, I think that perhaps one of the reasons why we don't pray as we ought to is that we are not aware of our own weakness. We perhaps think that we can get by fine by ourselves, And most of the time we can cope and we can flourish and we can be okay without actually praying. Paul is saying, if you knew the extent of your weakness and the help that's available for your weakness, you would actually engage with God in prayer. Listen, the Lord Jesus did not say in John chapter 15 and verse 5, Without me you can do most things, but when the going gets tough, call me. He didn't actually say that. Listen to what he did say. He said, "I am the vine, and ye are the branches: he that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit: for without me ye can do nothing." Nothing. Now just think about that in the context of prayer, so that if we exclude the Lord from our life, whether on a daily basis or or any part of our life, for example, when you go into the office or when you go into the classroom or when you go into the lecture theatre, if you think that's an exclusion zone to your Lord, he's not allowed in there with you. He's not allowed to see what you do. He's not allowed to know what you say. He's not allowed to to see the stuff you look at online. You have exclusion zones from God in your life where you're you're a practicing atheist because you say God's not actually allowed in there. That actually is completely contrary to the reality of being a Christian. And when we exclude the Lord from from our life in that sort of way, we are actually also saying that we can go alone, do it fine, get on fine without him. He says you can't. You'll fail. And those of us who have grey hair are maybe more aware of our failings than those of you who have yet to get grey hair. For example, look at Elijah. Now, Elijah was some man, as we say in Scotland. I mean, he really was some man. is a man who calls down fire and a sacrifice on the mountain. There's 400 prophets of Baal standing around, and he stands up before them, and he stands up for God and before uh, Jezebel and so on. He twice calls down fire to consume a commander with 50 men who have come to arrest him. But yet you go to the epistle of James and it says of him in James 5 and verse 17, he was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was just the same as us with all our faults and weakness and failings. He was weak, but he prayed to God who was strong. So Paul says here, back to Romans 9, he says, the spirit of... Also helpeth our infirmities. So he establishes that Paul and his, his readers have weakness. Now, I don't think any I don't think we'd hardly need to labour this point. That we are weak. Through our ego, through our flesh, through our pride, through our selfishness, through our inconsistency, through our unrighteous choices in life. We are weak. We are not strong. When we think we are strong, we are vulnerable. When we realise we are weak, God can pour his strength in us and through us. Paul says, we have infirmities. But we also have help. Now, I think Paul is going to speak here about that infirmities extending to his prayer life. For he goes on to say this. This particular infirmity that he wants to speak about is we know not what we should pray for as we ought. So he's now going to speak about the weakness of his prayer life. And the lack of knowledge in relation to what to pray for. Now, again, I'm glad that he said we and not you. You would think Paul knew everything. I mean, after all, he had received incredible divine revelation, the mysteries that he reveals in Scripture and all of that, and and his wonderful calling and his service. And you would think the intimacy that he had with the risen Lord, he'd actually seen him on the Damascus Road. You would say, Paul, there's not too much you don't know. I mean, surely you've got it all mapped out. You know you'll go on three missionary journeys, and you know you won't die there. You know you won't die been shipwrecked. He didn't know all of that at all. He includes himself. I mean, after all, in 2 Corinthians 12, God gives him what he calls a thorn in the flesh. And three times over, Paul says, he implored the Lord to remove the affliction. Of course, the answer to that was no. My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul, you will bear that weakness because you will be a better servant with that weakness, than you would be without it. He says, Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul here is speaking about the infirmity in relation to prayer, particularly, and in relation to knowing what to pray for. I mean, Paul wrestled with this in Philippians chapter 1, in relation to the serious issue of his death. And he didn't know whether it was better to go or to stay. He didn't know what was the best thing. Moses, who was told that he would not be able to enter the land, the promised land, as an old man. Deuteronomy 3, let me quote you these verses. They're so significant. Deuteronomy 3, verse 24 to 26, says this, And I besought the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, Thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness and thy mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to thy works and according to thy might, I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond. Jordan, that goodly mountain in Lebanon, saying, Lord, I want to go, let me go. But the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, Let it suffice thee. Speak unto, speak no more unto me of this matter. Moses says, I want to go. And God says, you're not going. You're not going. Elijah, that great man of prayer that he was, he also asked the Lord to take his own life. We often don't know how to pray, as we should. Maybe somebody in the audience is just there, today and you have a decision to make and you know the right thing to do is to pray about that decision but you don't know what to pray for it might be a job opportunity do you move or do you stay do you seek promotion and it's going to be complicated and more responsibilities or do you satisfy yourself but then it might not be a simple issue maybe you can't stay in the same place in your organisation you have to go up or out and maybe it's something to do with family. Maybe it's a relationship issue. And maybe these are current conference times, and, you know, I won't go into all of that, but maybe it's a relationship issue and you're wondering. And you don't know what to pray for as you ought. Well, if that be the case, let me encourage our hearts with what Paul says in verse 26. Now, here is the contrast. We do not know what we should pray for, but, here we go, as Lindsay was was showing us, here it is. The Spirit, there's the contrast, the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just say one or two things before I just pass on here. In the authorized version, it reads, but the Spirit itself, now that isn't correct. Now, I am no, uh, you know, uh, critic of uh, biblical texts. I don't know enough about it, to be honest with you. But I do understand this, that that word itself really represents the Spirit of God in a false way. It would be better the Spirit himself. Himself. The Spirit of God, let me just remind your hearts, if you're a Christian... The very moment that you accepted Christ as saviour, the Spirit of God accepted you as his residence. There's a mutual thing there. You submitted, and I completely concur with what Phil has been saying, you committed for you confessed the Lord Jesus, you confessed Jesus as Lord, you trusted Christ as your saviour, you yielded to his claims. Romans 6. And the Spirit of God immediately took up residence within your heart. Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, Upon believing, upon believing, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. God's seal is upon you. The Spirit of God is within. You belong to God, you're His. In fact, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 9 says this, Ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So every single believer in the Lord Jesus is indwelt by the Spirit of God, or they are not a Christian. You do not need to wait, to tarry, to pray, to work, to seek a higher blessing, to be indwelt by God's Spirit. It is automatic. You actually didn't invite Him or ask Him or do anything in relation to Him. You accepted Christ as Lord and Savior and the Spirit of God accepted you as His residence. And He came and indwelt you a wonderful thing, what a scary thing as well to think that God dwells within me the Lord Jesus, well he is at the right hand of the Father his ministry of intercession and verse number 34 says who is he that condemneth it is Christ that died ye rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us, that's where he is, but the spirit of God is within us, he's within us He is a person. He has personality, unlike some of us. He has personality. A real person. He is not an impersonal force. He is distinct from the Father. And he knows perfectly the mind of the Father. Perfectly. And it says this He helps our infirmities he helps now again uh, if you look into your bible helps you'll find this that that word help in its original form occurs twice in your new testament here and then in Luke or back in Luke chapter 10 and verse 40 and in Luke chapter 10 and verse 40 you have Mary and Martha and Martha's cumbered about with much serving And Martha comes to the Lord Jesus and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? You know, if you have a family at all, this is not an unfamiliar cry. It's usually between our two sons and it's to do with the dishwasher. And it's usually one is doing it and the other is not. And the cry goes up. But then Martha says this, Bid her therefore that she help me. There's the word. So we understand that. You know, Martha's not saying, you know, I I want to be completely, I want to stop and I want her to take over. It's, can she come and help me? Can she come and help me? And we'll do it together. We'll do it together. Now, that is the implication of the word here in verse 26. The word implies that the Spirit of God is not going to take it over. It's not that we are passive. It is that we are now in partnership. It is that he will help. It's the idea of you struggling along with a big burden. I don't know, maybe a big row of seats or something, and you're hauling this thing along, and someone comes along and lifts the other end of the burden, and both of you walk along with the burden between you. You're both carrying the load. And in order for the load to be transported, both of you have to carry the load. If one of you put it down, it's not going to work. That's the idea. So the idea is not just leave it to the Spirit. The idea is not he's going to do it anyway. We can be passive and forget it. The idea is just this, that as we are praying, as we are praying obediently, as we are praying and working and so forth, then the Spirit of God comes alongside and he shares the burden. He lifts the burden. He helps when we need help in our prayer life. And he does so And you'll excuse this expression on an emotional level. This is not technical. This is not uh, something at a distance. This is not something steely. This is not something matter of a fact. It says this, the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, When you think about that, there is two possible ways of interpreting that verse. Maybe more, but certainly two that I read. Some of the writers argue that they see it as inconceivable that God would groan. Therefore, this must refer to our groans, which the Spirit translates into specific requests before the Father. By the way, I said that. I think you'll understand that's not what I think. Um, But rather, the second way of thinking about it is this. And one writer put it this way, and I can't put it any better, so I'll just quote it. Divine articulations within the Trinity that cannot be expressed in words, but carry profound appeal for the welfare of me as a child of God. Well, the mystery of it all, that within the Godhead, me as a person I'm subject to divine communications in relation to my welfare for my best in keeping with God's will for my life the spirit is interceding in a committed way that is hard to describe in human language you know, you have the idea that God sometimes in Scripture has attributed physical human functions, you know, as seeing and hearing, but here he's actually attributed human emotion. And Paul is conveying the idea that the Spirit of God takes up our needs at the deepest level possible and intercedes for us. I wonder if that would encourage you and me to actually be honest with God in prayer. Do you know what I mean? I don't mean saying prayers. I mean being honest with God in prayer. Saying it as it is, naming it and shaming it sometimes in your prayer life. Not scutting around it, but actually getting right down deeply into the very issue itself. Notice this that he makes intercession. And he does so, if you come into verse 27, in complete accord with God himself, who knows the mind of the Spirit. There's absolutely nothing hid. And he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. According to the will of God. You ever been at a loss in the dark? Perplexed? You're up a dead end. You don't know what to do, you don't know where to go, you don't know what to say, you don't know what would be best anyway. What an encouragement that God the Holy Spirit knows exactly what is best. Knows exactly. There are certain things in relation to the will of God that we do know and we don't need to agonize about them. They're very simple because the Bible tells us. So, for example, our sanctification, we know that is the will of God for our lives because Scripture tells us that. And we don't need really to seek guidance in relation to any of that. We just need to actually obey and submit our will. We don't need to pray, for example, should I marry an unbeliever? You don't need to pray about that. Because God has already told you the answer to that. It's a matter of submission. You don't need to pray if, for example, you're in a relationship and you should have sexual relations outside of marriage. You don't need to pray about that. You just need to submit to what God has already stated and revealed in his word. You don't need to ask the question whether you should steal in whatever way to meet your financial needs. You don't need to you don't need to pray about that. That is what we call a no-brainer. You don't need actually to pray in relation to your ego or selfishness or jealousy or anything like that. You just need to kill the sin. You don't need guidance. God is already given his guidance. But there are so many things in life that we do need to pray about. Decisions that have to be made, sometimes not over things that are good and bad, but over things which may be good and things which may be better. Great areas of life, not in relation to sin, but in relation to the pathway of God for us in our life. It can be very, very difficult. And perhaps because we don't know then we just decide not to pray about it at all. Let me encourage you to pray. Don't be put off by the great mystery of prayer. Don't get into long debates and, you know, endless debates that actually are never going to settle the matter. How does prayer actually work? Well, I've never yet had anyone explain how it actually works, but the Bible says it does. So when we come to this these two verses let me just conclude you may not know and I don't know really the full mystery of prayer in life I don't really know how it works to be honest but we do know this that the Lord commands us and scripture often exhorts us to pray often we do know that the Lord prayed regularly We do know as well that God has ordained prayer as the means for us to communicate to him and with him. We know that. We know that we are encouraged by this and other scriptures that the spirit of God who is within us is active in our prayer life. We know that our prayers are saved in heaven because in the book of Revelation they're actually mentioned. And they're a fragrance to God. The prayers of the saints. So let me just finish with three points. Don't worry, they're just three statements. Three concluding statements. I suppose they're a bit negative, but let me put them in this way. Don't let the fact that you don't know how to pray as you ought to discourage you from praying. Paul often did not know what exactly to pray for as he ought but he still encouraged us in Ephesians 6 and verse 18 to pray at all times in the spirit secondly don't let the fact that prayer isn't easy discourage you from praying Paul told the Colossians in chapter 4 and verse 2 that Epaphras was always laboring earnestly for them in prayer and thirdly Don't let the fact that your prayers don't seem to be answered keep you from praying. You can trust God the Holy Spirit to intercede for you in accordance with the will of God. And even if your prayers are all over the place, his aren't, and his intercession is for our eternal benefit, I know the thought of it, that as I'm speaking, And I would suggest probably out loud to keep you awake But when I'm praying privately That there is divine communication At the same time a marvel What an activity for us all to be involved in How could we possibly consider life without it Well we do Because we're rebellious and careless And forgetful and all of these things So sometimes we need a little jab and a word of encouragement, and I trust this might be both, to us all to keep on praying or to start praying that the Lord might bless us. Now, just before I sit down, I'm just going to take this opportunity to seek to answer a question. Now, there were two questions put in the question box, and I got to the question box before Phil did. So I chose this one and I gave him the one he's got. So mine might be a bit quicker in answer than his, I don't know. Um, I'm going to read the question that was put in that I've lifted and seek to answer it, although uh, a full answer would require uh, probably a full session of ministry, so it will be a truncated answer. question is, Is in inverted commas, friendship evangelism a valid biblical method for evangelism in our present day? And they go on to explain, lest I don't know. Friendship evangelism is the idea of making friends with unsaved people with the aim to share the gospel with them once they know you and have their confidence. You have their confidence. Uh, many proponents of friendship evangelism um, believe this is the most effective means of reaching the unsaved in today's world. A key verse used is Matthew eleven nineteen, where the Lord Jesus is said to be a friend of publicans and sinners. So is this practice scriptural? If yes, what are the dangers to watch out for? If no, why not? And what other means of evangelism are best to use for reaching the unsaved of our modern Western society? That's almost like a political question. If yes, if no, and if no, why not? Uh, I won't be like a politician. I'll try and give you an answer. Um, the, the, the story goes about... <laughs> I shouldn't really tell us. The story goes about the politician who was asked in Scotland this question, and the question went on and on and on, and the politician said... That's a good question Next question <laughs> I won't answer it like that um, Friendship evangelism um, In a sense, let me just say this And I don't mean to be sound smart But all, all evangelism Is actually True friendship In essence that's what it is Because You will have You will be A true friend to someone if you bring the gospel to them. There is no greater act of friendship than that. I think what is meant really behind this is the idea that you have to um, make yourself like people who are unsaved in order to win their confidence So you adopt their music, their their lifestyle choices and so on, and you become like them um, and gain a relationship with them that way and communicate the gospel with them. Um, as you can see by the way I'm dressed, then I really am not the best person to speak about that kind of thing. But an expression of true love, is what I noted down here, is to pass on the gospel to those um, people that you know in your community, in your workplace, uh, and in your family. Think about the example of the Lord Jesus, who was the greatest evangelist who's ever been here. And the Lord Jesus Christ took the gospel, the good news of salvation, to everyone who crossed these paths. And to, of course, he intentionally made himself cross other people's paths, but he would speak to publicans, he would speak to sinners. There was no one out of bounds. He would speak to the religious folk, he would speak to non-religious people, he would communicate the gospel to the whosoever, to anyone. But the Lord Jesus, in doing so, did not become like the person he was evangelizing, in this sense. If you're going to bring the gospel to someone As a good news of salvation and liberation from sin You don't then want to adapt A sinful lifestyle in order to do so It's counterintuitive I think evangelism Is very difficult actually I think that when you look at Acts And you look at the gospels You can see the challenges of it I think that evangelism If you think about it in the local assembly Then you can see the patterns of what took place Uh, in Thessalonica, from from you sounded out the word of the Lord and so on and you can see that there is different methods of proclaiming the gospel it's not a one size fits all and you use the different words for preaching in the New Testament and there is the idea of conversation, there's the idea of proclamation, there's the idea of um, debate and there's the idea of apologetics, all of these things are found in the book of Acts in relation to gospel testimony, they all have biblical authority, all of them You have the Apostle Paul in Ephesus for example in the school of Tyrannus and he took that place and it was a debating forum and he debated, he explained and he taught the gospel. There were other times when he stood in Mars Hill and he proclaimed the gospel and so there was proclamation and there was exposition and teaching. It really depended on the audience how he communicated but he was doing basically the same thing he was communicating the word of god evangelism must have at its core no matter the methodology around about it it must have at its core the communication of the word of god if it's missing it's not evangelism it has to have that at the very core now whether that's by conversation whether that's by apologetic or whether that's by proclamation or whether that's by whatever it is It must have the word of God. For faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. There's no other way. When you think about that, then you think about how then do you, um, if you like, manufacture opportunities? Well, the answer is you don't. If you read Colossians four verse two to six, you'll find this that Paul is praying and he's praying for he's in a prison and he doesn't pray that he would get strength or opportunity to manufacture a chance in the gospel. Rather, this he simply prays that God would open doors. That's what he wants. And that he would be ready to take the opportunities that God presented. He saw God's hand at work in these things. When you think about us in our lifestyle, our lifestyle must actually be an exposition of the gospel we preach. You cannot communicate the gospel and your character is a contradiction of the message you preach, or your lifestyle is a contradiction of the message you preach. For example, you're in your workplace it can't be a surprise if you tell someone you're a Christian and you ask them to, to, to have a conversation whatever about the gospel and they're stunned. Because the week before, you were in the bar and you were having a drink or you were putting a a bet on or or you were laughing at the jokes that were crude or or your lifestyle is actually just exactly the same as theirs. Well, they're going to ask you, well, why should I become a Christian? Because it doesn't look as if you're any different from me. What's the difference? You say, well, I'm going to heaven. say, well, it has to be seen. You can't be the guy or the girl in the workplace or the university who's the gossip. You can't be the person who's known as the thief or the liar or, or the person who you never know how they're going to be. They might be fly off the handle at you or like you. You can't be that person. If you are, don't speak the gospel. But if you're consistent with the character of Christ then there will be a separation and there will be a distinction. And I don't mean you've got to look weird and act weird. What I mean is just this, in your character you must be Christ-like. And that will manifest itself in your choices in all these other areas. But then what about in your community? Friendship evangelism. Yes, I believe in it. I believe you should show the people in your community, the kindness of Christ. I believe also that assemblies should be known for their charitable giving, not just to the furtherance of the gospel, but to the alleviation of poverty and need in the community, for that's exactly what the Lord did himself. He was kind. He was compassionate. He helped people. And we ought to be the same. I don't believe, as I, in case you, you uh, misunderstand me, I don't believe that that in itself is evangelism. It's not. But it's a lifestyle and it is, it is a representation of the gospel that's consistent with the, the, the message of the gospel that's proclaimed. So that would be my idea of friendship evangelism. It would be christ likeness on display, as modeled by Christ himself in Scripture. Start with the character. Let the other stuff take care of itself. If you're like Christ in character, you'll not have to debate and worry so much about this other stuff. And don't get drawn in to deep and meaningful friendships that we heard of that can cause you all sorts of bother in the community and in your workplace. Now, I trust that if you want to talk more about this, then uh, just speak to Phil later. I'm sure he'll help you more than I can. Or there's Lindsay smiling away there. He thinks he's got off scot-free. Um, you can speak to him or anyone else. Now, I'm going to ask Phil to come up and just to uh, address the question that he was given. Thanks, Phil. <coughs>
1: Now, I'll not take too much of your time, uh, but we are grateful for the questions that were put in. And I just have it here. Uh, What is the reason why the tribe of Dan, it says Daniel, but it means Dan, I'm sure. What is the reason why the tribe of Dan is missing from Revelation chapter 7? Now the questioner might have gone on to ask and would be therefore halfway toward finding the answer if they had said why is the tribe of Dan missing from Revelation chapter 7 and why is the tribe of Ephraim missing as well? So Revelation chapter 7 144,000 Jews, who in the middle of the tribulation period of seven years, 144,000 Jews will be sealed sovereignly by God. Now, they are separate from what we call the remnant of the nation. There will be a godly remnant. In general, the nation will be totally, totally arrogant, unbelieving, still blind, but there will be an awakening... In the middle of the seven-year period, there will be an awakening of a spiritual remnant. And they will be the ones who, who in the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, they will be the ones who will actually take the gospel of the kingdom into the four corners of the earth. The 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7, you find them again in chapter 14. And the significant thing about the 144,000, 12,000 out of each of 12 tribes, is that God seals them and uses them as a witness for himself. Now, I know that sometimes we're fond of saying that these men go out and they preach the gospel. Well, the Bible doesn't say so. The Bible doesn't say they say anything. It doesn't say they do anything. It simply says that through the agency of an angel... God seals them. I judge the reason why he does is because the man of sin, the beast, is uh, approaching worldwide dictatorship. And through his henchman, the false prophet, the mark of the beast is being applied to men and women... And without that mark, they will not be able to buy nor sell. They won't be able to trade. They won't be able to do anything. And it seems to me that God is saying, right now, if this uh, man who is the epitome of rebellion, if this man who is now at the long end of a long line of prototypes like Cain and Nimrod and Napoleon and Hitler and all these kind of men, if this man who epitomizes the rebellion Of the human race, if he's going to have the audacity to mark certain people, well, I'm going to mark mine. And the significance of that company being in chapter 7 and also in chapter 14, chapter 7 is at the middle of the seven year period, chapter 14 is at the end. And there are 144,000 Jews who, for three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, are absolutely invulnerable. I judge that's their witness. We don't read of them saying anything. You can imagine, you've got fertile imaginations, you can imagine how that the false prophet, in his work of trying to get everybody subject to the man of sin, he will go with his thugs and his henchmen and his hitmen, and they will try all manner of means to make these people accept the mark of the beast and to bow the knee to the man of sin. They will try beating them. They will try shooting them. They will try all kinds of things. And not one out of 144,000 will be lost. I think that will be one of the most eloquent witnesses in a world of ungodly men that will probably bring terror into the hearts of the ungodly. For they will see through these 144,000 that God is at work. They're all there at the beginning, and they're all there at the end. They're all Jews. This is because Jehovah has his witnesses. And they're not the people who meet in kingdom halls and come around and knock your doors. He has the witnesses from his nation. I had a couple at my door very recently, and uh, to the younger man I just said, I've I recognize you. You're a local fella. I think you went to school with my son. And he said, I think I did. I said, now tell me, son, you, uh, you don't look like a Jew, and I know you were born in the town, so so are you a proselyte? Yeah, I mean, how did you actually become a Jew? Or, uh, he said, Mr. Colson, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Jew. You're mistaken. He said, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you told me you were. Tell me more, son. I thought you said you were a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, Yeah, he said, but I'm, I am. I I go to the kingdom hall down the road, but I'm, I'm not a Jew. I said, well, now listen, son, you're either deluded or a liar. Because when I read my Bible in Isaiah chapter 43, God says to Jews, he says, now, ye are my witnesses. Jehovah is speaking, Israel are the people he is speaking to, and he says to the Jews, ye are my witnesses. So if you're a witness of Jehovah, a Jehovah's witness, and you're not a Jew, you're either deluded or a liar. Now which of the two is it? And then the older man suddenly remembered that they needed to be somewhere else, and, and they were, <laughs> so away they went. God will have his witnesses, and that's what that 144,000 are about. So now we have a list of, of 12 tribes in Revelation 7. And and it's one of, if my memory serves me correctly, about eight or nine such lists of the 12 tribes of Israel in your Bible. And most of the time they're different. So it's not the only list that's different. This one is slightly different in that two tribes are replaced by two others. We don't read of Dan, but we do read of Levi. And we don't read of Ephraim, but we do read of Joseph in Revelation chapter 7. So Ephraim and Dan are specifically excluded from the list that contextually, there's that word again, that list that is contextually to do with a witness for God in the tribulation period. What's happening in the tribulation period? There is a man who is a Gentile who has just moved his headquarters from somewhere probably in Europe to Jerusalem. He's done so because of an incursion into Israel by northern forces and southern forces, probably Islamically motivated and as they come to destroy Israel, they can't bear the sight of Israel dwelling in prosperity and peace. They've made an agreement with hell, the Bible says, but for the moment it seems that they've got peace and stability and these countries, Ezekiel names most of them Turkey's one of them Russia's one of them uh these countries can't bear to see Israel at peace and they attack from the north and the south and God destroys them that's all in the middle of that seven year period God destroys them and that triggers the movement of the man of sin from Europe to Jerusalem there has been a temple rebuilt there in unbelief it's a false temple and he desecrates that temple So there is a false temple that's desecrated, there is a false prophet, there is a false priesthood. And then there's these witnesses. Go back in your mind to Judges chapter 17 and 18. And in Judges chapter 17 you read of Ephraim. And in chapter 18 you read of Dan. And from the tribe of Ephraim, there was a man who in the north of the kingdom, when there was no king in Israel, and everybody was doing that which was right in their own eyes, there was a man who set up his own little fiefdom. And it got bigger, and it got bigger, and it got bigger. And he said, you know what I could do with here? I could do with a priest. I could do with a priest who could come, and then I could be the administrator of this new little kind of kingdom that I'm carving out, and he could be the priest... And so along comes a Levite from Bethlehem of Judah, and he comes and he gets the job. And so this little empire grows and grows. Micah is the man who's in charge of it administratively, and uh, this priest is in charge of it religiously. And now they set up a false sanctuary, and there's a false leader, and there's a false priest. And then in come the tribe of Dan. And they're looking for territory, and they march in, and they say, oh, this is pretty handy. This is quite orderly. I think we'll have some of this. And they forcibly take over Micah's house, and they take over his priest, and he takes over everything else. Wrap it up. I've got to wrap it up. Right, right now? Next two minutes. Thank you, brother. I'm sorry. This is what happens when you get asked questions. So the Danites come along and they say we'll have all this and chapter 18 finishes up with the tribe of Dan and they've now got a false sanctuary and a false leader and a false priesthood and a false prophet and it is all a picture of where Israel will be in a day to come. And I judge that's the reason why God says because of what you tribes did In chapters 17 and 18 of Judges, I'm not going to have you as my sealed witnesses when the real thing comes in the day of tribulation. So he replaces Dan with Levi, and he replaces Ephraim with Joseph, so that God still has his witness, but those people forfeited the privilege of witnessing for God because of their activities back in the days when there was no king in Israel. I've, I've kept you back from your tea and everything else, Uh, I sincerely apologise. Thank you. I wasn't disagreeing with his
0: answer, just to be clear. But uh, we were just getting signals from the kitchen, and they were smoke signals. So uh, we wanted to move on as quickly as we could. So we're going to get one of those timers next year.